welcome. I'm hoping that um, you're all having as amazing a two-day conference experience as um, the feedback has been, but I know the sessions I've been able to be part of have been really extraordinary from the presenters um, to the Q&A that folks have been asking to really keep the dialogue rolling all along here. And I hope you got to visit with our um, with our uh, exhibitors also along the way. This is our last session of the conference. We're here with Emily V. Gordon. I get the uh, privilege and honor to have a conversation with her, but first to introduce her. If you've met me before at any of these events, you know I just like to chit and chat, but today I have to actually put on my glasses because Emily's rather accomplished and I have to read all the great things that she knows how to do. So she's an Academy Award nominated writer who co-wrote the hit film, The Big Sick, and I'm confident many of us have seen it, related to it, and are excited to hear her side of that story as well. Um, she and her husband, Kumal Ninjami, did it together. They were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, and it won Best First Screenplay at the Film Independent Spirit Awards. She's also nominated for a Writers Guild Award, a Critics' Choice Award. The list goes on. We might give you just the wiki page by the time we're done with all this. But let's keep rolling with a few other things because I think, I think it's really important that we get to know all of Emily. So Emily and Kamal co-developed, wrote, and executive produced two seasons of Little America for Apple TV. Each episode of the critically acclaimed anthology series is inspired by true and poignant stories of immigrants in America. So there's a theme here about bringing true stories about people to life so that we all understand how to live a little bit better, I think. We'll talk about that in a minute. They also executive produced the limited series, Welcome to Chicken Chippendales, based on the true story about Chippendales founder, Soman Banjari, in which Kamal also stars, which premiered on Hulu last November. And I'm gonna just blow it here. She just had to scold Kamal a little bit. So what we know <laughs> is that he might be a star on the screen, but he's really a husband at home. <laughs> Together, they've adopted, uh, they've adapted Doubtful Guest, a 1957 illustrated short story by Edward Gorey into a feature for Amblin. The Flash and IT director Andy Machetti is a set director to produce alongside with his sister under the Double Dream banner. So a lot of family orientation I'm catching up here as well. You're working with people. So I, I'm catching a theme to the way you live. <laughs> and your solo work includes features for Ball and Chain for Netflix, Plato for E1, and John Chu attached to direct to that one as well. In addition, you've written for The Carmichael Show on NBC, Another Period on Comedy Central and Crashing on HBO. And as a, this is what I think is amazing. You're a former couples and family therapist. Um, and as well as all this funny stuff, you wrote a self-improvement guide called Super You, Release Your Inner Superhero. Um, and I think that that's pretty interesting given all the work that you do with us now and bringing your world together. And then you ran a live stand-up show for six years in Los Angeles called The Meltdown with Jonah and Kamal and produced three seasons of the show for, for um, Comedy Central. So now I can take off the glasses because that's like the resume part. <laughs> but we spent some time together in the fall where we were really talking about what it means to be immune compromised in the midst of a pandemic. And now we're moving to a part of time where the world, some people call it post-pandemic, some people say no COVID, 
but we're all still living through it in a new and different way. So I'm really excited that we're reconnecting and having an opportunity to just continue that conversation because that's a long list of great accomplishments. And I could see a lot of people not understanding that you do a lot of things to make yourself energized and ready to make that happen, right? You'd see the ID and your other condition, they're invisible. So how are you managing all this great work, but then recognizing that you have to rest so you don't quit and deal with people saying, but you don't look sick. Yeah. The invisible illness part of it, I think is always, um, it's always tough for people. It's, it's certainly tough for me in that I have not always been great about advocating for myself and advocating for my needs um, because of not wanting to be a bother. I'm also Southern. So my whole thing is like, oh, you don't want to be a bother. Like my mom, some I watched her one time not call an elevator because she didn't want to bother the elevator. Like that is, that's the stock of people I come from. Um, and so weirdly having the big sick movie kind of out there has helped people understand, oh, she's got a thing. And that's how a lot of uh, people I work with, because I work with essentially different people at every job I do. Um, I've heard that shorthand used a few times. Oh, she's got a thing. That's right. She's got a thing. Um, and so it really does become about advocating for yourself. And I have pushed myself to the point of um, having to take like four days off to be sick. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens to me. If I don't stop before I hit a wall, I'll have to, I'll get sick. And then it's like, well, now we're down for four or five days. So what would you rather do? Would you rather me uh, <laughs> take like a half a day now, go home and just kind of rest for the rest of today? Um, or would you rather me be missed four days in a couple of days? Um, and that has come from years and years of really listening to myself, watching myself push myself too hard, suffering the consequences, and then getting smarter over time. So I'm thinking of two things at one time. I'm thinking today there was a great session around managing your PI in the workplace. And so for folks who didn't hear it, they might want to go back and listen to it because what I feel like you're describing is that whole spoon theory, right? Like I only have so many spoons. How do I use my spoons? I use the phrase, how do I rest so you don't quit? How do you, you, you know, what's your spoon theory? How do you leverage something like that? I have like a, it's, and I didn't realize it. I think we all live by our own internal rules that we think everybody's living by until you talk to another person. And then you're like, wait, you don't do that. Uh, <laughs> and so I certainly have my own, like, it's almost like math of like, um, I don't really, I don't really drink very much partially because it always makes me sick. That's a big one. So to me, it's like, if I have a couple of drinks and I don't get a lot of sleep, those two things added together equals, Hey, I need to be careful the next day. I have a tough workout um, and I'm in a really stressful work environment on the same day, that's going to lead to, Hey, maybe I need to be careful the next day. So I have like, I have my risk factors uh, that I'm always looking out for. And I know if I put two in one day, I'm pushing it. If I have three in a day, that's a recipe for disaster for me. So I, I've kind of developed these little, like, these are the things that are going to hurt me choose wisely. Um, and that includes work. That includes long hours. I, I often tell people I'm a writer, uh, but I'm not a showrunner. A showrunner is a job that is, uh, you're kind of in charge of the entire production and you're there the longest hours in television. I've kind of said several times to people, oh yeah, I would never want to be a showrunner. I've got, I, I don't, I, I don't feel qualified quite yet. 
But the truth is, I don't know that my body could handle uh, Misha running a show. And that's hard for me to admit even here. And I'm always trying to look for, am I pushing myself enough that I'm finding uh, new things that I can do and new things that are possible for me and always growing versus am I, am I going to burn myself out continually? (laughs) It's always a push pull for me to try to figure out how I can push myself without hurting myself. Um, I started Mm -hmm. weightlifting in the past couple of years and I never thought I could do that. And um, that's been amazing and I love it. And I can push myself really well and hard there. Um, And so I I try to remember, don't ever settle for, well, this is what my life is. It's this very small thing and I have to keep it this small or else I'm going to make myself sick. There's always ways that I think we can kind of push ourselves um, so that we don't stay in boxes forever. I don't, none of us want to do that. All of us want to keep growing and kind of um, doing new things, I think. I love hearing you say that. Um, For those who are listening and joining us in this moment, I'm a caregiver. I'm the mom of someone who lives with CVID as opposed to a patient. So my perspective is is sometimes, not sometimes, frequently different. And when we were together back in the fall, that was one of the things that Kumal and I had a moment around, we have to trust that you know your body and that you are the boss of your body. So it doesn't really matter what we think, right? That was, that was like, yeah, <laughs> right? And then we said, tough luck, guys, we love you. You have to know that we're gonna worry anyway. But the phrase that we use in our house is, if you can't have what you want, what can you do with what you have? And that's kind of what I hear you living, right? Yeah. Like, like I might, I might not be a showrunner, but I'm a damn good writer. So let me put my energy there. So it's recognizing how to make that shift for yourself. Yeah. And, and not throwing yourself a pity party. Although there are certainly days I do that too. And not, um, not, uh, I would work hard, especially with my husband, as you, you guys did connect on that of like, I understand it's coming from a good place, but it's, uh, it, when someone tells me I can't do something, all I want to do is do it five times harder. <laughs> Even if I don't, just because I've been a rebellious kid my whole life, and I still am. Um, and so recognizing, oh, I can't push myself just because my husband is worried for me. And also he shouldn't be pushing me, but also I understand, I understand why he doesn't want me to do it. It, it gets complicated. And I think the more you can voice all of those inner, all that inner turmoil on both ends, it's helped me understand his perspective as a caregiver. I can't even, it's hard for me to even call him that. Sorry. Uh- <laughs> care partner. We're supposed to call care partner. Care partner. I love that. Uh, it's hard for as much as I can hear his inner turmoil and as much as he can hear mine, I think that makes all of the difference because suddenly we're not just kind of having the same argument over and over again or having the same conversation over and over again. We're seeing the vulnerability inside of each other that we maybe weren't always acknowledging. So I, I and I like that phrase care partner because you partner in it, right? Both Very much. The whole family unit is impacted by the most vulnerable. And and sometimes it's, you know, the nine-year-old son who's anxious about the local World Series game, or maybe it is the 11-year-old sister who has CVID, right? Whatever that is, that's what the family are, is moving towards. So the, they partner in care for that moment. I just think that framing really works. I'm curious, because you started out as a therapist, does that ability to reframe 
and hear each other's dialogue? Are those coping skills from that training or do, have you just continued to cultivate that all along? Very much so. I, I And I think because this stuff for me, physical vulnerability is way harder for me than emotional vulnerability. I can be emotionally vulnerable all day. And I think that people sometimes don't think that there is emotional vulnerability with physical vulnerability. And um, uh, for a care partner or for a person uh, like myself. And so I think I end up talking to people a lot about that. Like, it's okay. It, it's more than just your body that is is struggling with this. You are You are struggling with this. This is hard for you emotionally on top of physically. So we can't just pretend like it's a physical issue. And we need to, um, I, I think my training as a therapist has got me really good at when I'm feeling uncomfortable, kind of delving into myself and not just assuming and, and questioning it and continuing to question it, not, not being like, well, he's telling me what to do and I, I don't want to do this. So I'm, uh, that's why I'm mad. No, it's not that. It's that for someone whose body has been, um, has not always had choices, has not always had options, um, who's felt kind of like an object at times, objectified and not the sexy way. Um, I then feel even more powerless when I hear other people talking about what I should do with my body. Um, I feel incredibly powerless and it's not, it's a very emotionally upsetting feeling. And it took me a long time to figure that out. It's more, it, and it's, and because it's all related for me that the, hearing doctors and my husband talk about me and my body while I'm in the room. I know they mean well, but this, these are things that happen. And, and um, the more I feel pushed out of my own decision-making um, the, the sc more scared I feel. And then the more uh, reactive I can be, I'll say, <laughs> I'm really bringing the attitude for this. I thought I was going to be all like kumbaya, but it's true. This is all part of it too. <laughs> But I really appreciate that you're humanizing it for everyone, right? This, this is a real experience. We have several folks who talk about that balance and that dance of the intimacy of the community of family, whether you're caregiving or care partnering, and recognizing that there's a person behind that, right? You are not your illness. You are a whole entire person who has made decisions. I'm hearing things from you like, I now lift weights and I know how many days I have to have fun before I take a break. So that balance with that self-care, right? I'm going to use the air quotes around self-care. How did you develop that element to prioritize that? Or is it just become a natural evolution when you're advocating for your turn in your body? I think, it, unfortunately for me, it was a lot of trial and error of like, of just seeing the consequences and, and starting to actually listen. And maybe that's the best form of self-care that I kind of developed was actually listening to my body and, and not trying to make judgments about what was happening with it, not trying to editorialize, uh, but literally just, and it's, that's also a therapy skill, by the way, observing, observing what, how my body is feeling. Uh, and kind of taking note of, okay, well, what happened today? I'm feeling a little tired. Okay, I'm definitely almost feeling a little feverish today. Like what's going on here? Okay, I wake up tomorrow and, didn't, and I'm not feeling well at all. What happened yesterday? Truly just trial and error of like, um, I one time I ran, I had to run to catch a plane in an, air, in an airplane. And on that plane, I, I started feeling terrible. And I was like, 
yeah, the combination of like stress and running a long distance, I'm in fairly good shape, but like when you're running with bags and nobody's good, um, <laughs> trial and error, it truly has just been trial and error. So listening, learning to actually be an observer of my own body has been really, really, that's been the best self-care I can, I could possibly recommend. So of course I'm listening. I'm hoping others are listening. I'm making notes because I'm going to personalize it. I have a 24 year old person who really just wants to be 24, right? <laughs> like just wants to be 24. And um, she's actually doing an amazing job in the sense that what I've noticed is she's taken over more and more of her own medical management. She's eating really healthy. The girl who was never going to cook snaps me pictures of new recipes she's trying and for her, living a gluten-free vegetarian life has been life-changing. So, okay. So, right. That has been huge for her. She walks to work in the city so that every day endorphin rush as well as fitness has been um, a big deal. But if you were to go back and be in your 20s, I'm sorry to bring you out of your 20s, but if you were to go back into your 20s, is there anything you would do different to kind of accelerate that learning other than that kind of self-examination elements that you talked about today? That's a really tough question. I was very, um, I was pretty self-destructive in my twenties. <laughs> I'll be very honest. And I, I was not diagnosed. I, I didn't get truly sick. I was pretty sick for 25 and 26 and 27 is when I got really, really sick. Um, but before that, I didn't have a lot of, um, I didn't have a lot of respect for my body. I didn't treat it well. I truly didn't. And I, um, yeah, so a host of things would have needed to happen <laughs> for me to develop it. But I think I love that. I love that your, your child is kind of doing it um, so early on out of necessity. And I think I would say it's unfair. It's unfair. It's unfair <laughs> that your child has to be so careful at this age. It's unfair because I even now see people who treat their bodies absolutely terribly and are so healthy, never get sick. And it's unfair. And I think acknowledging, I had a wonderful therapist who kind of helped me. I, I get a treatment every month that is really wonderful for me. And, but I, I hate getting it done. It's really kind of uh, traumatizing. It doesn't feel great. And I was really struggling with, oh, I should just be grateful. I should just be grateful. And I shouldn't, and my therapist was like, no, you get to be mad. You get to feel both ways. Mm -hmm. You can feel multiple ways. And um, so that's what I would say. I, it's unfair to have to get your shit together when you're in your 20s. It's unfair. It's unfair to have to live um, in a way that your peers aren't. Um, it's, it's unfair. And just acknowledging like all of this is unfair. It shouldn't have happened. Here we are. What can we do? And, and I think the sooner you... When you get sick, when your body betrays you, you feel such a loss of control of like, I can't even get this, this, I can't even control this. This is the thing I'm supposed to be able to control. Everybody else thinks they can control everything. And you're mm -hmm. the one who learns this lesson so early. Oh yeah, no, you, you, you control very little in this life. And, um, I think the sooner you can just kind of sit with that and then figure out what you can control, which it sounds like with the gluten-free diet, with the like kind of taking control of those parts, it's unfair that you have to get your stuff together um, earlier than most people don't do that until their thirties. But the sooner you can sit with that, I think the better. It took me a long time to sit with that. 
I really appreciate that. And I'm hoping others can hear that from all the perspectives that that came is really poignant. Thank you. You, you, you did, you made me emotional again. So (laughs) So, no, it's good, but that's why we, that's why we build this community because otherwise we're all at home a little bit nervous that we're the only ones feeling that way. And the reality is there are thousands of us who are just looking to understand that what we're feeling in our circumstance is normal. It might not be typical to what's happening at the world at large, but it is kind of regular for people who are living with the circumstances that we do. And so I I appreciate your candor because I know it helps me and I've been navigating this for a long time and I'm still always evolving Watch, watching her evolve because it changes, yeah. right? The, the, the way your body reacts to medications. And again, I'm, I'm saying this outside, but I've watched the number of prescriptions change, the way the frequency of the IVIG change, right? I'm, I'm assuming you're coordinating all of that within your writing and traveling and wifing and all the other things that you do, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was just in London and I flew home every month to get my infusion in Los Angeles. I was there for four months, but I flew home every month, both to get the infusion and um, also to do stuff in LA that I needed to do. But one of the months I couldn't make it home and I had to scramble and figure out how to get IVIG in London. And I was able to do so, but that's just part of what our lives are is that I I can't, I always say if there's a zombie invasion, I'm gone. I'm, I'm there's no way I'm out because I, I require monthly, I require this medical infusion monthly. That's it. There's no, that my entire life is built around getting that every single month. All right. So let's switch gears to the big sick. So I I think of, you know, seeing the big sick, there were moments in that movie, just like quite frankly, the fault in my stars where I felt as though someone had had a recording somewhere in my house and took the dialogue into a movie. But what was different, I think about that is that it's a rom-com, like a romantic (laughs) comedy. Like, did you, did you anticipate that going in that it was going to be a romantic comedy? No. No. And I think, I think as a writer, I try not to think, oh, I'm writing a comedy or I'm writing a drama because um, then you just kind of, I think the product gets worse. I think you just write the best version. Anything I write is always going to be a little bit funny. Anything I write is always going to hopefully be a little poignant. And um, it truly wasn't until we were we were editing the trailer for the movie after the movie was done that I we were like watching a cut of it. And I was like, did we make a rom-com? And I was like, I guess, I guess we did. I, to us, it's just like, oh, we just kind of made a version of the events that happened. But it is a story of how my husband and I fell in love. So I suppose, yeah, it's a romance. And then we're both like to be funny. So I guess it's a comedy. But um, yeah, I didn't go in. I didn't go in with that intention. I'm not a huge rom-com fan. Sorry. <laughs> we won't tell. No one don't will tell. know. Please don't it's tell. our secret. <laughs> so the the other element that struck me is I just mentioned your movie, The Other and um, I, I think about, and, and again, I'm thinking about the folks who are with us in this chat. You know, there are milestone moments in someone's life. One of them was applying to college, for example. And I know that speaking to other parents, when their young person, their teen was preparing for that, they had a hard time, some had a hard time writing that college essay because they didn't want to see their story. Because now you're, you actually are confronted with your story. And I'm curious what it was like for you if having that rom-com lens or 
knowing that you tend to be a little funnier if that eased being able to see or tell your story? I think so, because I, the story is just the events that happened, right? Like your story is your, the lens you look at it through. Um, your story is different than the events that happened. This is true both as a screenwriter and as a therapist. The events that happen are a separate thing than how you view them and how you interpreted them. And so your story is not just that you got sick. That's just what happened. Your story is whatever, whatever it is. It's, it's how you interpret it. It's how you see it. It's how it affected you. It's how it shapes how you look at everything. But it's not the only, like, it, it's, there is a version of The Big Sick that is a horror movie. <laughs> there is a version yeah. of The Big Sick that is just a family drama. There's a version of any events that happen to you um, there's a version of it that's ho horrible and, and traumatic. I always talk about Batman. Batman watched his parents die in front of him and he could have either ended up kind of uh, in, in horribly uh, traumatized for the rest of his life or he ended up Batman. He kind of ended up both, but that's a different story. We're not talking about that here, but <laughs> I think it's that's part of it that we, we have a choice. We have a choice in how to... Um, interpret and how to move forward from the events that happened to us. Um, and that's what your story is. That's what putting your story on paper, I think really is, is what are you taking from the events that happened to you? Not the events. How did it shape you? Who are you now that you weren't before? Um, that's where you find the interesting stuff. I think just the events of the story might be a little scary and upsetting to look at. It might be, but those are just events that has nothing. It has a lot to do with you in some ways, but it has nothing to do with you in other ways. Um, you really kind of have to bring your own vision to it and everyone has their own and they don't even realize they think that's how everyone sees things. No, the way that you see things is the only way that anyone's ever seen something. Use that. <laughs> I love that. There were so many moments. I was so afraid I was going to talk over you in there. There are so many <laughs> amazing nuggets, right? Like right? At you only you see it your way. Beautiful, right? You're not who you were at the beginning of this experience. Embrace it. Um, and the other thing I heard you say is um, there's the facts and then there's the story you tell yourself about the facts. So choose your story. Yes. Um, so I, I, I think yeah. that's really powerful. So yeah. thank you for that. I think that's a really important um, piece. So, so when we think about that storytelling element, um, we've talked about the fact that, you know, PI is primarily a invisible illness. A lot of folks might not recognize it as challenging as it can be, but it's also chronic. It is without cure today in most cases. Um, how do you navigate that part when people are asking you, like, when is it going to be over? Like, you know, or... The pandemic's over, so aren't you safer? When in reality, you might feel less safe because you don't know where the hotspots are in the country anymore, things like that. Um, how are you navigating that and advocating for yourself and educating others? I think, um, again, being a rebellious kid helps. I think one great thing the pandemic has done, knock on wood, is that it's normalized wearing masks, wearing masks in America. Um, which I was always supposed to have worn a mask and I, I, I didn't uh, before the pandemic. And now I do any public transportation, planes, airports. Absolutely. And I dare you to say a word to me about it. I dare you. <laughs> I just simply don't care what I don't care what you think it is. Why would I? Uh, why would I take 
what you think over what is good for my health. Um, so I have a few stock responses, most of which I can't say <laughs> here, I'm sure. But um, I think I think if anything, what the pandemic did was kind of open my friend's eyes, many of whom were incredibly um, lovely, empathetic people. They were like, there's just this thing out there that could hurt us all. And it's, yeah, welcome. Welcome to where we've all been living this whole time. Uh, <laughs> if anything, I think it increased uh, people's empathy and my friend's empathy, I'll say, I can't speak to people. Um, it increased my friend's empathy to, um, the fragility of our bodies. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I love, I love that. It's a scary notion, but everybody kind of needs a whiff of it. I think every once in a while. And, um, yeah, I here, I wasn't even going to do this, but I'll do this. Our, our cat, um, our cat got very frightened a few, like a week ago. And, um, we were trying to grab her because she was in like danger. It doesn't really matter. She attacked both my husband and I like with claws and my husband, fine. My arm blew up like a balloon, uh, turned red, blew up like a balloon. And I'm on my second course of antibiotics and I'm going to get emotional because it was, it's just those weird little reminders of like, oh yeah, you're different. Like there's no version of you. It's your own cat. <laughs> And my own cat sent me to urgent care. Uh, you can kind of still see the bruising. And that's, it's tough to deal with. And I, um, we were just about to leave London. I had to navigate all this in London. We were having a goodbye party with our friends. And I showed up, I, I was like, I can't go to the party. They're gonna see that I'm weird. And, and then I was like, oh yeah, where is that attitude that I, I have? Like, I need to bring that attitude and just go to the party and go, yeah, this is part of what it's like to be me. Um, massive. The arm was massive. Um, left the party halfway through to go get the antibiotics, came back, didn't drink, uh, but did go get the antibiotics. And you either can lean into it and, and, uh, and be like, yeah, this is me. I don't need pity. I don't need a ton of attention for it. It's just a piece of information. I have to go get these antibiotics. I will come back to the party in a few minutes. Um, and I used to feel shame around that. And when I start to feel that shame now, I stop myself and just tell myself, I have, I have nothing to be ashamed of. And the all. empathy that so many of my friends gained over the pandemic, I think has ended up serving them well and help, helped me too. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had fun at the party and uh, my arm is finally going down <laughs> after a week because that's just I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And what's the, what's your cat's name? Bagel. And she didn't so, mean to. Well, that's it, right? When something you love hurts you but doesn't mean to. Yeah. You know, like when Kamal and I are taking care of you in Madison, we don't mean. Yeah. No, I hope that heals quickly, though. But but again, it sounds like you when you couldn't do what you wanted to do, you figured out what you could do so that yeah. you could have as much life as as you possibly could squeeze in, squeeze in. Sort of like in the thick of the pandemic, when we were all in lockdown, you and Kamal decided to start a podcast and invite people in. Uh, so were you just like sitting around going, we're bored, just looking at the two of us, let's have game night with people on Zoom? Like, how did that all come together? I think we wanted, we desperately wanted to do something that could help uh, because all the proceeds of that podcast went to charity. And we thought we were kind of having conversations about how we, we'd had to go into lockdown before when I'd been sick. Uh, that that had been kind of just part of what our relationship um, involved. And we were like, you know, we're weirdly qualified to like 
in this moment in time. We kind of know, we know how to handle this. We know how to kind of sterilize things. Like we just kind of, we, we know how to do this. We're like, well, maybe other people could use that. Um, and yeah, th that's how it kind of started. And it, it, it also just felt good. I think even where we love each other, we're very communicative, but there's still something about being on a podcast where you end up having conversations you wouldn't have had. I highly recommend all couples just get two microphones and pretend that you're on a podcast um, or even make a podcast. You'll say things that you kind of didn't think you were going to say before. Um, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and rumor has it there was some gaming involved that you're a big gamer and that's a big part of your, oh, look at the eyebrows go up. We've been playing more. video games. Both of us, uh, our, our entire lives have been big video game uh, people. And that's part of how we fell in love was kind of, we played Halo 2 together. was our first game that we played together way back, way back in 2006. And uh, we still play video games together all the time. Yeah. So gaming stays in the new world. I'm just going to call it the new world. I don't call it the new normal. I don't call it the before. Like that's we're just right. in a new, new phase of life. Does the podcast continue into this new phase of life? Like what no, comes it, with us forward? Oh, well, um, masking uh, and not feeling weird about it. I think um, also, um, I think everybody's gotten good, including myself. I've gotten better about being like, hey, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going to come in. Um, in. In the industry I work in, in the film and TV industry, you could never take a sick day. There's no sick days. You don't, you come to work sick as hell. That is just what has always happened. The pandemic did make that better, uh, not just COVID-wise. Um, I've I've seen people kind of not coming into work when they didn't feel well. Love that. Why on earth were we coming in and just infecting everyone? Um, so those things will all come forward. Podcasting. My husband and I had done a podcast years ago together about video games, in fact, and then did this podcast in the pandemic. May do it again someday. I don't know, but not currently. Um, but maybe one day. <laughs> all right. So. All this happened in your whole life. A lot happened in the last two years. What's getting you up in the morning that gets you say, this is my next big adventure or my next investment of my time and energy to create or learn or do? It's a great question. I'm currently on strike. I'm a WGA writer and um, we are on strike to get better working conditions for ourselves. So um, right now I am picketing. <laughs> that is... <laughs> I don't do okay. it every single day. And it is, it's exhausting. Picketing is very tiring. So, uh, I, and I'm doing my best to kind of take care of myself there. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I'm picketing, um, around lots all over Los Angeles and I'm trying to get birds to come into my yard. Uh, we had, we just moved to a new place and we don't have a lot of birds in our yard. So I'm trying to figure out the best bird feed situation to get birds into my yard. Those are, those are my projects right now. <laughs> so side convo on that. One of the things I've noticed coming through this last two and a half years or so is I think more people are feeding their birds because I know in Connecticut, they're more colorful. Like the colors That's are nice. more vibrant. And I'm like, have we upped like their nutrients or something? It's really interesting. I like that. And, you know, as I said, we were just in London and I got to where every day I would have like magpies and Eurasian jays and, and pigeons, like all kind of feasting in our little kind of tiny yard that we had. And, uh, and then I, I feel sad for them because we left them and I don't know how they're going to, they'll be okay. Right. Someone they'll will fine. find them. I promise. Don't worry. Someone will find them. Someone will find them. 
<laughs> All right. So now we're coming to that point where I'm going to be sad because I don't want to hang up. I'm really enjoying spending time <laughs> with you. And I'm thinking people are enjoying it. But is there anything, any pearl of wisdom, anything that you think we might have missed that would be it nice, if not wonderful, to share with the group who's listening in with us this afternoon? Um. I think I'm just incredibly grateful to the work that the the foundation does. I'm incredibly grateful to the work that I assume everyone who is here is either a professional, uh, a care, care, what is it? Care, not care. We went with partner. We chose partner partner today. Care partner or uh, someone like myself. And um, I just, uh, I'm very grateful to the community. I don't really have any, any kind of uh, extra pearls of wisdom other than thank you. Like I, I don't know, without the infusions that I've been getting now for about six years, uh, about six years at this point, I I don't know, I don't know what my life would look like, because I was really struggling for a very, very long time. And um, so anytime I get a chance to just say thank you, I, I can only say thank you, because I can lift weights, I've gotten all these tattoos, um, because I feel well enough to do so. And, so will the um, tattoos dance when you're done working out? Is that the idea? <laughs> I can make them kind of, yeah, a little, I can make them flex a little bit. Um, <laughs> but there's things like I am doing in my life currently that took me even four years to work up the courage to start doing after getting infusions and kind of getting healthy. Um, and I, I'm just really grateful. So thank you for all the tattoos and thank you for the weightlifting. And um, yeah, that's it. I don't have any words of wisdom, just gratitude. I think I'm going to, I'm going to take a little bit of what you said though, because I've distilled down. I feel like we've had little chapters as we've gone through here. And I heard you say it's taken about, you've been on your IVIG for about six years. And for the last four years, you've been moving into this healthier way of living. And someone, something happened in my world and someone said better late than never. And I said, I'm not late, better now than never. Just start now with whatever the next thing is to make you stronger and healthier so that you get your fullest life. Like that's what I'm taking away from all that you've shared. Um, I don't know if that's what you wanted to put out there, but that's what I No, that's great. Exactly. (laughs) It's exactly what you said. That was what I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) To donate, volunteer, or learn more about primary immunodeficiency, visit primaryimmune.org.